Hi, I'm Phil Arula from Cambridge, Mass., and you're listening to Two Bald Pastors, connecting real faith with real life. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two Bald Pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. And we are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. Today we are honored to have with us uh, Bishop Paul Erickson of the Greater Milwaukee Synod. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So we are excited to have you on, and you are our first newly elected bishop on the podcast. We hope to be able to connect with others as we go along the fall here. We we did kind of start at the top. Our very first podcast was interviewing Bishop Eaton, so we didn't know where we could go from there, but here we are. In, uh, <laughs> We're with you, so now our day is going to be great. So <laughs> thanks right. for being here with us. <laughs> well, from the top to the bottom, I guess. <laughs> no, not at all. But uh, as we get started, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, your ministry experiences, and a little bit about your personal life? Sure. Well, I've been an ordained ELCA pastor for 27 years. I grew up in the greater Milwaukee Synod area, born in Minnesota, but then as a young child moved here uh, and went to high school here in this uh, Synod. My dad was was an LCA pastor at a couple congregations here. I went away to college in uh, Minnesota, Gustavus Adolphus College. Okay. Um, Did Lutheran Volunteer Corps for a year, then went to Mexico to learn Spanish. Um, where I lived with a family in the base Christian community movement. Um, and that was where I made the decision to enter seminary. So I entered um, Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, was part of the joint Hispanic ministry program. Took about a third of my coursework in the Spanish language so I could learn the theological vocabulary and become comfortable in that setting. And have worked all of my ministry in bilingual communities, not necessarily bilingual congregations. Sure. But often in ang- uh, traditional white congregations that were exploring how to connect with their neighborhood in different ways. So did that in Chicago for my first call, uh, was married and, and then divorced in that first, at the end of that first call, moved up to Milwaukee to become a pastor at uh, Faith Lutheran Church here on the near south side. Uh, met my now wife, my current wife, on, uh, we were both started our job on the very first day of oh, November wow. 15th. 1993, we met at a pastor's Bible study in the okay. basement of Cross Lutheran Church. Uh, <laughs> we met, started dating, and we're married uh, about a year later. Um, so we now um, have two great kids, a son, David, who's 20, daughter, Sarah, who's 16. Uh, my wife is an ELCA pastor, still serving in Minnesota. So we're a little bit of a two-point okay. parish family right now. Right. Yeah, wow. Um, when I was elected in June, she was not really ready to just immediately resign her call. They're yeah. in the middle of some very important things, and yeah. so... That will take place at the end of December, um, and then she and my daughter will join me here in Milwaukee mid to late January. Yep. So, but I spent, going back to my timeline, was spent 10 years in ministry here in Milwaukee, started a Spanish language worshiping community at Faith Santa Fe, got it to where I thought I could get it, and then I needed to get out of the way so someone else could take it to the next level. Sure. Uh, served in Minnesota, um, Augustana Lutheran in West St. Paul for six years as an associate pastor. Um, and then was called to serve on the bishop's staff in St. Paul, the Bishop Peter Rognes as a director for evangelical mission. So I worked there for, uh, like I said, six years, helped to start uh, six new worshiping communities during those years, then was called to serve as a director of a ministry called Agora, 
which does lay leadership development for immigrant and multicultural communities. So it's housed at Luther Seminary and, and has pr classes for lay preachers, lay teachers, lay evangelists. Did that up until this call, uh, when I entered the call process here in the Greater Milwaukee Synod this spring, and then was elected at the uh, June Assembly. Wow, lots of variety in your background and ministry experience, it sounds like. Yes, it's been a wonderful career. I've done a lot of great things. Um, I'm, it's been a great ride, and uh, I've enjoyed all the struggles and all the challenges and all the uh, rewarding ministry along the way. So could you tell us a little bit about the process of your election and just kind of how that happened, you know, just from kind of uh, getting to the, the Synod and you were just kind of new, a new face, and uh, right. all of a sudden now you've, you get the, the fancy hat and crozier. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we'll see about that. Well, part. we'll see. Okay. <laughs> I'd served here in ministry, like I said, for 10 years and then uh, moved to Minnesota. Right. Um, seven years ago when uh, there was a bishop's election, a friend of mine in the Synod contacted me and asked if I'd be interested in participating in the in the bishop's election process then. I was a year into my call in the St. Paul Area Synod office, and my wife was a year into her call as a newly ordained pastor, and timing just didn't make sense. So I said, you know, thanks, thanks so much for thinking of me, but right now it's not a good time. So Bishop Jeff Barrow here announced that he would not be seeking a second term. So this is about a year ago now. Okay. Um, and so they had a process, a nominating process uh, in the Greater Milwaukee Synod, Every synod does it a little bit differently. Some have no process. Some have very involved processes. And in this synod, it took one person to nominate you, um, and you had to say yes. Wow. Uh, so I was in contact with that individual again, and I said, what do you think? Does it make sense? He said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. You'd be great. Come on, you should yeah. do it. So um, I said, sure, what the heck? Let's just be a part of the process. I'd been a part of the St. Paul Bishop's election process two years Previously, when I'd been on staff, um, ended up being the fourth place uh, vote getter in that process. So, okay, so you that had didn't happen. Yeah. So, um, so I thought, well, sure, I'll be a part of the process and see what happens. And my wife said, sure, go ahead, you know, do what you want, but then come home and get real. Um, so, <laughs> so nice. there were um, four. We had to fill out some paperwork, answer some questions about who we are, vision for ministry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there are four. Uh, pre-assembly forums. Uh, there were eight of us who were uh, nominated in this fashion. All of us had at one time served in the Greater Milwaukee Synod, but four of us were currently serving outside the Synod. And there were four different areas, um, I'd say 75 roughly people, roughly an average of 75 people came to each of the forums, asked us questions, you know, he had two minutes or 90 seconds or three minutes to respond. And, uh, and the last forum concluded in the first week of May. And then there was a, a month where there was kind of silence and nothing, waiting for the assembly. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we showed up at the assembly. One of the first things they did was they just had a, they went to a straight ecclesiastical ballot, which in our tradition means you hand out a blank slip of paper and say, put the name of any ELCA pastor you know on it. Right. And, uh, and then through that process, I w after the first ballot, I was the leading vote getter. Uh, so I thought, oh, <laughs> Maybe this is going to happen. We'll yeah. see. So then, wow. then you have a chance to withdraw, and then they have another ballot uh, with all the names of everyone who's been nominated. And then again, I was first place. So there, and then they break it to the top seven. Right. Top seven get up a five minute speech that we knew was coming. So we'd all pretty much prepared something. Okay. And I gave what I thought was a really good speech, and then I dropped into third place. Oh no. So then I thought, okay, maybe this won't happen. That's fine. Um, and then it breaks immediately to the top three. So it was myself, uh, Pastor Lisa Bates-Froyland, 
very gifted pastor here in Milwaukee uh, at Redeemer Lutheran Church on the Avenue. And then um, Reverend Dr. Harvard Stevens, who is, uh, I think his title is Dean of the Chapel at Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Okay. Very well-experienced African-American uh, clergy person. So then the three of us that evening were invited to address the assembly. We had three questions to answer, and we, had, we each had, I think, eight minutes to respond to those three questions in any way we wanted to. Mm. It's not like they question, answer, question, answer. It was just they gave us the three questions about two or three hours ahead of time, and then we had some time to prepare some thoughts. And so my wife uh, was not with me at the time because our daughter was finishing up her finals of her sophomore year in high school yep. until Friday afternoon. And this is about Friday afternoon. She goes, well, what, what should I do? Because the plan was that they were going to come down and join me for the assembly if I was still in the running. And I said, well, I'll know at 8 o'clock if I'm going to make it to the <laughs> final two. Yeah. So you get started. It's about a five-hour drive. And I said, 8 o'clock, if I say take a right, that means go to the farm in Iowa and I will meet you there because I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I spoke, answered the three questions. And seemed to that seemed I was pleased with how that went, um, and then there was a big vote, and then I was back in first place again. Um, so Lisa Bates Forland and I were the final two. So I called my wife and said, "Keep coming, we'll see what happens," because um, there wasn't a huge vote gap, 10, 12 votes between Lisa wow. and myself. So then we went to bed Friday night. I slept a little. Um, <laughs> woke up Saturday morning. There was not another opportunity to address the assembly. Uh, we just showed up, did a few business points, and then uh, they had the final vote. Every Senate, again, does this a little differently because yeah, yeah, yeah. it was all electronic. So someone in the House knew immediately who had won. Um, but they had sequestered uh, Pastor Lisa and myself into two different rooms, and we were waiting there for about seven hours. No, it felt like about yeah, a half It was an really hour. five minutes. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and just kind of pacing back and forth and wondering. The assembly business is going on the, the floor. And, and then Yvetta Bullock, uh, who is the ELCA staff person, she's an assistant to the Bishop for Administration, I think is her title, um, or executive assistant, whatever. She walked in. She was, she was facilitating the election process on behalf of the, the wider church. And when she walked in, I thought, oh, I think I know what this means. Yeah, because um, I thought she would go to the person who had won. Yep. And so she said, "Congratulations!" And uh, my wife and I hugged, and uh, and then she hands me the envelope. It <laughs> says, "This is your life for the next several months. <laughs> We're going to sweep you away and take over your schedule." Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so then there was a bit of a pause again. They were waiting for the right moment, and then uh, they announced it to the assembly, and and the balloons and confetti. No. <laughs> But I had a chance to address the assembly, and uh, my wife and daughter were standing with me, and I'm sure they probably looked very shell-shocked. Then after that, there was a, um, the assembly pretty much closed shortly after that, and there, were, uh, there was a closing worship service at which I was asked to preside um, over the liturgy. Uh, thank God, not preach. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's one cool moment. If you don't mind, I could just go please, into it. Uh, yeah, yeah, please. So one of, the, one of the three questions that we were asked to reflect on, the, the three questions were— uh, what reforms would you nail on the church door for the next 500 years? How would you strengthen the ministry of congregations throughout the entire synod? Um, and what's your favorite hymn and why? And it was the hymn question that I think helped connect people here to, your, to my heart. Because uh, I talked about some struggles in my life that I'd had, challenges. And the hymn that I chose was uh, Thine the Amen, Thine the Praise. Oh, Wonderful nice. her brokering hymn. But it has this vision of this future in which there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more darkness, only light. 
And I said, that's the vision um, that keeps me going when times get tough. So, you know, I break down a little bit every time I sing that song. So if you want me, yeah. if you want me to cry, just play that song. <laughs> so, I'll pull anyways, up the audio for that and we can sing it together at the right. end. <laughs> yeah, 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 don't. Um, but so we get up there into the closing worship service and I'm just kind of trying to follow the liturgy and not mess up. Well, I've had a bullet preaches, does a great job. And then I wonder, I wonder what the closing hymn is. So I turn over and they had crossed out the closing hymn. Oh, boy. Oh, no. And I said, oh. Well, what, and, and then during the, the, um, the passing of the peace, one of the chaplains at Carthage comes up to me and says, I'm going to announce the last hymn. So she gets up at that point and says, um, we're going to sing Thine the Amen, Thine the Praise. Wow. <laughs> and wow. so it's just a really powerful moment of yeah. um, feeling connected in a deep way that God was a part of this process. Wow. So, wow. That is a great story, and thank you for sharing it. Yeah. Um, so uh, Something I'm interested in, so... From the time of the assembly to when you you really take office and start being the bishop, what kind of happens? How's, how does that work? Because you have to close down some things, I, I would imagine, and, and, and look into those. Mm -hmm. Can you share some of that experience? There isn't a real recipe because right. every situation is different. Sometimes a bishop is elected from the staff. Jeff Clements in Northern Illinois, it was that. And and I think he just kept, kept going. Um, and the next day he was uh, doing some of the stuff of being a bishop. Um, other times there's a pastor from a congregation who has a whole lot of transition to do and a whole lot of learning to do. I had previously been on a synod staff, so I kind of knew what questions to ask. I didn't know any of the answers because I'd been away from Milwaukee for 13 years. Right. And I had uh, a life and a home and a job uh, in Minnesota. And so I had to kind of figure out what makes sense. So what I did was um, you know, I drove home that night and then back to my life. But I came down uh, two weeks later and met with the staff, because having served on a synod staff when there was a bishop's transition previously, um, I was still on staff when Bishop uh, Patricia Lowe was elected in St. Paul. Yep. I left about three months after she took office to begin Agora's work. But I knew that there'd be a lot of anxiety on the staff, like, what's this new person going to do? Or is it going to fire the whole staff and do what? And so I wanted to assure them that I did not have a plan. Um, <laughs> and, uh, my basic mantra was, if you don't give people information, they make it up. Yeah. So I wanted to give them information and ask them anything they wanted to ask me and just kind of lay out what I am thinking. Particularly with this staff, the director for Evangelical Mission had already left to take a job in, at the churchwide office, being the, um, the director for DEM relationships, uh, Sandra Kristowski. So I knew that was a vacancy that would need to be filled. There's one other full-time associate. She had only been in the job for a year. Um, is doing a great job. And then there's a half-time associate for discipleship. So I basically asked the associate assistants to the bishop to just um, give me six months um, to really get to know the lay of the land here and them and how we're going to work together. And then that we'll sit down after six months and figure it out together what makes sense. So there was that kind of staff piece. And met with all the other administrative staff just to learn what, how, did, how is the work divided up in this office. Because um, there's some core tasks that need to take place in a bishop's office. In some places, you're also able to do some other, like a, like a parish pastor. I mean, there's some stuff you got to do. And then every pastor approaches the priorities of the work a little bit differently. Um, might spend more time in this area than that area. Um, depending on the context, depending on their own gifts and passions, somewhat the same here in, in, a, in a synod office. Because director for discipleship ministry, um, there was this funding for a, what they call a cross-generational ministry position here, which is used to be the youth ministry staffer and is now cross-generational, and that's not been filled. 
And so sometime I'll need some time to figure out how do we want to organize the resources of the staff and the limited time that we have to focus on what we need to focus on. So I met with the staff in June for a couple of days, met with Bishop, uh, retiring Bishop Jeff Barrow, then went back and, you know, had an email account. So every day doing an email or two and then came back down in July, four days of formally it's called New Bishops Formation. Um, sometimes called Bishop Boot Camp, sometimes called Baby Bishop School. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> all those, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Meet with the churchwide staff, meet with uh, the lawyers uh, so you can begin to learn that process. Mm. I think they've done that. They've learned that you can't learn it all in one week. So they've kind of broken it down and we'll be going back before the Conference of Bishops meeting at the end of September, beginning of October. There's a day and a half where all the new bishops will be again gathered to continue the formation. So that was July, about a week in July, and then came back home and was working on the house to get it ready to sell, and then was a part of, was invited to be a part of the churchwide assembly in New Orleans for a week. Um, bishops who are elected but not yet in office um, are invited to be uh, part members without vote. So I sat with the delegation, and I could speak had I, if I wanted to. I didn't choose to go to a mic and speak, but then got to know the voting members of, of, uh, my dele of the delegation from uh, Greater Milwaukee Synod. Then came back home for a couple of weeks and then moved down here September 1st to begin. Wow. So right. Sounds uh, like it's a been kind of a whiplash back and yeah. forth. Um, yeah. And I think I had coffee with one of our pastors, and she said, yeah, we kind of thought you'd just get started June 5th. And I was like, well, this is what you get when you elect someone from 300 miles away. Um, <laughs> it'll take me some time to kind of get up to speed. So yep. I'm asking for patience and diving right in. So the last two weeks have just been really intense. Uh, lots of conversations, lots of meetings, just trying to figure out what are the priorities here and what are the people and what are they doing? They're doing some great ministry here and I just need to learn and support them. Just to be helpful for those who aren't familiar, uh, could you tell us just what the geography as is of the Greater Milwaukee Synod. I mean our synod sure. in New England has six states, hundred and eighty two congregations. We're pretty spread out. I mean if you could just sure. share us share with us that people could get an idea of your context. Right. It's it's widely known that in the Midwest Lutherans are very dense. Um so we have <laughs> right. um seven <laughs> counties uh, seven counties in southeastern Wisconsin that make up the Greater Milwaukee Synod. <clears throat> one or two congregations that are just on the other side of a county line. But you, generally speaking, in, the, in these states, uh, when there are five synods, actually, yeah, uh, five synods um, in the state of Wisconsin, and then there's one synod that includes the northern counties and the upper peninsula of Michigan. So we go by county lines, not state lines. So there are seven counties in southeastern Wisconsin that go down to the uh, Illinois Wisconsin border, uh, Racine and Kenosha are the two larger cities there. Goes north all the way to Sheboygan, which is about halfway to Green Bay, and then west, east to west, it's about, depending on where you are, uh, 30 to 50 miles from the lake. So it's this kind of narrow corridor along southeastern Wisconsin. I believe we have 128 congregations today. That's probably going to be reduced in the coming uh, years sure. as congregations are looking at consolidations and mergers and closures and things like that. And uh, last official count was, I believe, roughly 75,000 baptized members. Okay. Wow. So I'm really kind of interested in hearing a little bit, perhaps, of your reflection on if the Reformation were to start again and you had to nail something to the church door, what would you say? If you could share maybe a, a couple of points that you 
highlighted or if your answers mm-hmm. changed, you know, since then, uh, what, what you would say now? Sure. What I often tell folks as we're in meetings these weeks is that I think in pencil, meaning I'm, I kind of think out loud one of those external processors. And so mm-hmm. if I say something, next time I come back to that topic, it's probably going to be a little different. <laughs> right, uh, right, right. Because well, I'm continuing yeah. to think about it right, and changing. Right. Some of the things I know I said back in uh, at the June assembly in response to that question was, I don't know that we need new reforms. I just think we need to live out the old ones. Hmm. Uh, for example, the one that I'm talking about is priesthood of all believers. Uh, it's a wonderful concept in which all of God's people and their baptism are given gifts of leadership and, and proclamation and are called and invited into the life of service of God and of their community. Um, but we have set up a very hierarchical structure in our world um, that does not recognize what I think is the true genius of the priesthood of all believers. Um, and so I think we have professionalized ministry into such a way that we have professional Christians. And pastors too often are the ones doing ministry on behalf of yep. these folks who are working really hard in their daily lives. And they see their job as a Christian is just to just show up on Sunday and to contribute money and some time to serve on committees so that the pastor and the professional Christians can, can do the ministry. I know that's an overstatement, but just to make yep. for, for sake of making a point, I think right. we often fall into that trap, and all of us do it, and there's some ways in which that's a very efficient uh, model of doing ministry. But I don't think it's necessarily what the, God is calling the church to be about moving forward. I have worked in recent years and even prior to that with helping leaders figure out that every person is a leader in some way and some capacity. Yes, some are called to more public leadership, but all of us are called to a life of leadership, discipleship, living out your gifts, proclaiming God's love and word and deed, etc. So we need to find multiple pathways um, into leadership in the church and to create some systems in which people can recognize that they indeed do have gifts to share. A phrase that I love in the service of installation, it comes from, I think it's 2 Corinthians, uh, where Paul says, uh, leaders are to be regarded as stewards of the mysteries mm-hmm. of God. I used to think that the mysteries that were being referred to were the word and sacrament, and that ordained pastors were supposed to protect them from being corrupted um, or misused. <laughs> yeah, right. And I said, no, 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 no. You are the mysteries of God. You people mm-hmm. gathered here are the gifts of God are the mysteries of these great, creative, flawed, yet beautiful mysteries, and leaders are called to, to steward your gifts that you might serve God in the world. And so I think there's ways in which we need to simply get back to that original calling um, where every Christian um, is called to live out their faith in the world. That's great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I truly believe that as well. I mean, that's what we need to do. And as you know, Jeff and I, as pastors and congregations, we need to make that a focus and find ways to engage people where they are at, not necessarily say this is where you need to go, but where are you at and how can we be a help and resource to, for you to connect your faith with your life? And that's one of the reasons why we started this podcast is because we cool. said that, that there are so many wonderful resources and people out there who inspire us, and we want to share that with other people. 
One of the authors that I like to go to, Alan Roxborough, who's done a lot of work with missional leadership. And I know the word missional has almost become uh, meaningless as it gets slapped on anything these days. But I really do think there is some genius in the original insights. And Alan Roxborough's definition of leadership is the, the task of a leader is to cultivate an environment that releases the missional creativity of the assembled people of God. So this cultivating an environment, or sometimes I'll go a different tack and use a, a, a metaphor of an architecture of relationships, mm. that we as leaders are called to create a space in which the Holy Spirit can work and is more likely to connect with people and that people feel supported and, and empowered to use their gifts. And sometimes that creating or cultivating a relationship is simply by asking the right questions and focusing conversations, saying, okay, no, we're not going to go down that path. Here, how about this? You know, what do you wonder about when you look at this community? And, and how do you see God active in the world today? And uh, what, what's stirring in your heart? Rather than, what do you think we should do? Right, um, yeah, right, I, I right. love I mean, that. It, the yeah. question that you ask creates an environment that allows people to kind of go, oh, I didn't see those two things connected before. Let's, let's talk together about that. Rather than being the one who's going to tell people what to do, right. let's just cultivate an environment that, that lets the Holy Spirit work. I think that's so helpful because so often, I, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I do, I, that not only our people, but myself included in that, we run from one activity to the next. Mm -hmm. And we're, we overbook ourselves because we don't want to miss something or we feel like we need to contribute to things. And we don't pause for any kind of reflection on what that means or, or why we're doing it or yeah. if we could be cultivating something better. And to have a community of faith be a place where you actually do some of that reflection and say, here's how people are using their gifts. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. So thanks for sharing that. I've also spent a lot of time in my previous job with Agora learning about dialogue education, which is a methodology rooted in the work of Paulo Freire um, and kind of this popular education. But it takes seriously the need to respect the, the wisdom that people are bringing into the room mm -hmm. and also to integrate immediately the practices, attitudes, um, and beliefs that you're trying to, to teach um, and have them being practiced immediately. Education, that is not something I've got, you know, the traditional banker model. I've got something that right. you don't have. I'm going to give it to you. Then I'm going to send you out into the world to figure out how to apply it. Yeah. Dialogue Ed is let's together kind of construct what we all know about this particular question. And then here are some ways that you might be able to live this out in the world. Let's do that right now. All right. And practice it and come back and get some feedback so that when you leave, I have confidence that the people who are exploring this particular question might actually behave differently in the world because I've seen them do it right in front of me. Yeah. Right, so right. What, would it, what would it be like if our education and worship experiences in the church included that kind of, of practicing those behaviors? Rather than thinking, if I just preach the best sermon ever on reaching out to our neighbors and I tell people why it's important, I give them illustrated examples and, and I inspire them to run out and talk to their neighbors and then say amen and go home and pat myself on the back yeah. and expect it to happen. Now, right. if preaching alone changed the world, we'd have a different world. We would. Right? We yeah. definitely yeah. would. But 
So preaching is powerful and important, but it also needs that ability to to practice those behaviors and to and, and somehow in the midst. And I'm this is you know if I was a parish pastor, this I'd really look at reshaping our Sunday mornings and incorporating some of those. Um, exercises and practices, and then sending people out into the world, confident that they might behave differently because they behave differently in this place. David Lowe often talks about, we often see worship as a performance, yeah. right? That yep. people come and spectate and give thumbs up, thumbs down, put money in the plant as a sign in the plate. It's a sign of appreciation. Uh, and that, uh, but he said, no, 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 this is not the performance hall. This is the rehearsal hall, and the performance hall is out in the world. Yep. So we need to practice what it is we want people to do in the world, and they need to practice it right here. And that sometimes may look a little messy. You know, we oh, had a, con- a conversation earlier this week where we, we try to make everything so polished and mm-hmm. so perfect, but life is not polished and perfect. Life is messy, and to have a polished, perfect worship experience on a Sunday and then say, this is not my real life, and that there is that disconnect there. Yeah, very much so. Like I said, in my previous work in the Synod office in St. Paul, we started new mission starts. They didn't start with me. They started with other people, and we supported and walked with them. But mm-hmm. I encouraged the developers uh, with several kind of mantras, one of which is failure is fascinating. I learned that from another mission developer in, in Minneapolis. And when something happens and it doesn't go as you thought it was going to go, you got to learn from it. Right, uh, right. And say, what is the Holy Spirit trying to teach us? And there is no such thing as failure if you learn from your experiences. So do you have a, a failure that you participated in that you learned something pretty good from? They like to <laughs> tell the world about? Mind sharing? Yeah, yeah. Um, we all have them, yep. I can, I, yeah, I often go back to the, my first call where there's a congregation declining in membership, uh, you know, 50 people on a Sunday, Kind of the limited savings were running out, and we had another church about five blocks away that was a little bigger, had a little bit better building, a little bit more money, but not much. And so for the third time in our history, I said, we need to explore a merger. So we had it all figured out. We had a buyer for our building, um, and we were going to sell our building and move over to the other building, and, and I was going to leave the congregation so that they could move forward. And it, it, it just seemed like such a brilliant plan. And then the night before the vote, I got a call that said, yeah, the organist doesn't, he's going he's gonna to do something tomorrow. Very oh, long boy. story, won't go into all the details, but he came up with a proposal uh, to forget this and actually to leave the ELCA so that they could call this other person that he knew wasn't on the ELCA roster and he wanted them to be their 10-hour-a-week pastor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, that's a dumb idea. That, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. But it passed. Oh, my goodness. What I learned, they eventually voted not to leave the ELCA. You have to have those two votes. Right. Yeah. Um, so I learned all about this process way back then. <laughs> um, the bishop came and talked to them and said, and the bishop said, you know, if you want to have this other guy be your pastor, we can get him back on the roster. If that's your only reason for reason for leaving, not a good enough reason. So they voted to stay. Um, but there was no money. So I ended up uh, resigning that call, uh, moving on to do other things. But what I learned in that was that it's not about what makes sense up here. It's about what makes sense here that often is what guides decisions and leads people. And he loved that building and that organ in that church so much that he couldn't let go of it. Yeah. Um, yep. And so I didn't, but I, I never addressed this. I was only addressing this. And, and that's where uh, my mistake was to not take seriously the power of those emotional connections 
Um, so I often use the language of head, hands, and heart, mm-hmm. that all three are important. What we think, what we feel, and how we act in the world are integrated. Um, and we need to pay attention to all three of those dynamics and not assume that just because we've got a smart plan that it's the right one. Mm-hmm. Right. Our podcast is helping people connect their faith with their life, and you are definitely sharing many examples of that. But personally, what are some of the ways that you practice or grow or continue in your own personal faith experience? couple things. I'm not the kind of a, a diligent, organized uh, devotion or prayer person where I spend X amount of time each day, and I think that's wonderful. Um, that's just not how I've embraced that practice. One of the things that I make sure to do is every single meeting or conversation that I'm a part of is we either begin and or end in prayer, and that in those times of prayer, it helps me kind of summarize what we've been talking about, yep. or set the table for what we're going to talk about, and, and really connect it with with the Holy Spirit and what God is doing in our lives, and um, and also to respond to those kind of heart issues that sometimes are just underneath the surface. You know, when you meet with a pastor who's coming up with a plan to respond to something, and sometimes you you look just at the plan without the origin or the heart, um, and so that, the, that that time of prayer allows me to somehow sometimes articulate and make those connections. So it's helpful for me to listen to my own prayers as well. So that's one thing. Also, I love to sing, and I love to sing uh, in choirs. Haven't figured out yet how I'm going to do that here. What I've done <laughs> back in Minnesota is uh, my wife, is, as I said, is a parish pastor, so I sang in the church choir every Wednesday night. And uh, I love being in a place where I'm not in charge, Yep, yeah. where I can just participate in something that's larger than myself that I can't do by myself. Singing in choirs, I mean, I've sung in church choirs since I was 12 years old. Um, So that's always been a big part of my own uh, spiritual life. And connecting with others in worship is also a big part of it. And then simply um, getting outside and taking bike rides with my family um, and just getting my body, feel my body connected to my heart and my mind um, is an important integrating experience for me. It is good to have and recognize those different things that really help you connect with your faith. And not everybody, I think, can say that because, as Jeff said earlier, we're, we're always so busy going from one thing to another. So yep. that's, that's really great. What about a favorite uh, quote that me- means a lot to you? Something from Scripture or some other resource, but something that inspires you? couple things. The leadership quote from Ellen Roxborough is always kind of a helpful way to, for me to think about leadership. Other quotes, um, we had a question in the bishop selection process of, what's your favorite Bible verse and why? And so my go-to verse is uh, Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And um, That's a great one. Yep. And I've, I've learned over the years, you know, when I first went into ministry, I was really into justice work, wanted to make things right, whip the world into shape. And I didn't have much patience for pastoral care. I thought, yeah, okay, that's fine, I'll do it, but it's not where my heart is. And I realized that if you don't walk with people, if you don't love people, they won't follow you anywhere. Hmm. You know, you can't lead people if they don't don't think you love them. And so love is a central component in, in ministry. I mean, I go back to 1 Corinthians 13, you know, without love, we're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And sometimes you think of that, it's become the wedding chapter, right? Right. Um, love chapter. But I really think that it is a ministry chapter, that we have a lot of, 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 of ministry leaders, pastors and others, uh, who, who it's all about the plan. It's all about 
um, the project. It's all about the program. It's all about whatever. And if we don't invest in loving mercy and in loving those relate and, and loving people and simply connecting with them where they're at, it doesn't matter what your plan is. And then thirdly, walking humbly. That is something that, you know, I, I, I know there are folks out there who, because I've heard these comments directly to me, oh, now you're a bishop. Oh, I didn't know I was among royalty. Or, oh, you're <laughs> now top of the whatever. And I'm, and I'm like, I just don't. Yeah. I just don't see it that way because <laughs> I'm a sinner saint just like you. Yeah. And yeah. I've got some experiences that I'm willing to put in service of the church and the world, but it is every time I get a little bit full of myself, the Holy Spirit knocks me down. Uh, <laughs> Holy Spirit's good like that. <laughs> amen. Amen. I got stories about that too, but I don't know how much time you have. So <laughs> So that's been I could say others, but that's that's probably the, the the guiding verse of my of my life. Cool, and I know you're just starting in the office of bishop, but uh, you <laughs> you have the uh, ability to have a different purview than others have from that vantage point. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the hopes you have for the Greater Milwaukee Synod as you uh, take that position of of leadership and support? Well, a basic hope I have is that. We are living in exciting times. We could say scary, we could say challenging, but I'm going to say that they're exciting times because what we've been doing for generations is going to change. And we don't know yet necessarily how it's going to change or what it's going to look like for the next generation, how our congregations are going to be organized. Just this week, I've had several congregations or pastors are coming in saying, yeah, we're looking at merging. We've got to close this. We've got to sell that building because we just don't have the numbers anymore. And there's a lot of creative stuff going on. And my hope is that the creativity doesn't get taken up by figuring out how to maintain the internal structures of the church. Like, let's really be financially creative and uh, make effective use of our building and negotiate these three communities coming together. And that all of our energy is spent doing this internal Mm -hmm. uh, stuff without being creative and imagining, why are we here? Right. Right. How, how are we engaged in our world? And so in those conversations, that's what I hope to inject is to ask that basic why question and to help people imagine creatively some new ways of engaging the world um, that, that aren't simply, let's just buy ourselves some time. Because a lot of proposals that we have to sell a building, to have to share a pastor, to do something else, um, it's just to buy time so that we can continue to do what we have been doing. But what are you going to do with that time? Yeah. Yep. If you just keep doing what you're doing, you're just postponing kind of this inevitable closure or change of, of whatever nature it is. So let's, let's just let's use that time um, and open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. And that's messy. And we don't know what that's going to look like. But I'm hopeful to kind of continue to ask those probing, leading questions that help people really tap into their passions uh, when I talk to pastors, I like to often ask them, so why did you join ministry? What is it that makes your heart? Uh, tell me a story about a time when you experienced something in ministry and you said, that's why I want to be a pastor. Okay, so what is that? About? I, I, I don't think it's when the boiler gets fixed. <laughs> no, right? no. You know, but it's making some connection um, and seeing the Holy Spirit at work. And so let's find a way to make sure that those times are happening regularly, Right. Let's set up an environment in which you can not just be sucked up in structural renovation, but actual spiritual and relational renovation. And then to go back to something you were talking about before, to be able to share those stories and and have people reflect on 
maybe their own stories and how those connect with oh yeah i was doing ministry there I th yeah yeah one concrete way in which that i think can happen um a lot of our older members um and maybe it's you know older than 50 um <laughs> lament that their kids and grandkids don't share the same connection with the church that they have right so Correct. they ask yeah. why don't our kids care about the church and, and again, I go back to David Lowe's, who I think is a lot of uh, great stuff, but the question that he asks is, well, maybe it's because you've never told them why it's important to you. Mm -hmm. And so to set up those environments where you can invite people to share those reflections, saying, so why are you a church? And, and keep going to that deeper, deeper level, not just because it's important. Well, why is it important? And, and you kind of do, um, I think... Toyota has a mantra, you ask the five whys. So you keep going deeper and deeper. So why is that? And then why is that? And why is that? How has that helped your life? And why is that important? And so you keep kind of digging deeper and deeper and deeper until you get beyond the head and the hands into the heart. And that's where the power is, right? So we got to help people structure conversations where they can connect with what really motivates them um, in their lives and say, that's where we, that's what you need. You need to tell that story to your own kids. Absolutely. Sharing our faith is sometimes hard for people in our congregations, but it, you're right, it's critically important. And, and asking that why question with everything that we do in the church, why do we have this committee? Why do we worship the way that we do? Mm -hmm. And if we can't answer those, then it's really time to take a look at that and, and to figure it out. Because if we in our own churches can't answer that, we can't expect the community to know why we do what we do. Jesus said, unless you're like children... You, and I think it's one of the gifts that children give us is they keep asking why, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. That can get exhausting. You don't need to live there, but you need to at least go there now and then. Absolutely. Right, right, yeah. right. So Jeff uh, asked you a question about a failure that you've had in your ministry. What about uh, success that you can uh, think about in your ministry? Uh, bring us to uh, a story about some sort of success that you've experienced. I'll just go more recent to bookend the failure story. I've had failures along the way, for sure. But um, my mo most recent position was with Agora. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a ministry. Um, it's a, Agora is the Greek word for marketplace, and it's a name I inherited. But it's people are coming from all over the place to share their gifts and re resources. And our country is now becoming that kind of a place where people are coming from all over the world to share their gifts and resources. So mm -hmm. the mission of Agora is to develop leaders, lay leaders, for immigrant and multicultural communities. So we offer classes for people from Africa, Asia, Latin America who are currently members of, participants of, mostly ELCA immigrant ministries in Minnesota and South Dakota. It was a, a ministry that was really not sure if it was even going to be able to exist, but some funding came through and they decided to roll the dice and hire a full-time director for two years, um, which was me. And I felt that it was important to begin uh, having classes, not just at Luther Seminary, but in all these places, and to incorporate this dialogue education methodology um, and to build a sense of ownership of this ministry. So I was pleased that after I left, we hired, uh, the funding wasn't there to continue a full-time director. Um, and, it, and we kind of knew that going in. It was a two-year kind of a experiment to get something up and running. Um, but they just, now we have a network of, of coordinators who are going to continue this work and just had a retreat last uh, weekend. <clears throat> 20 people came together. I think 16 of 15 of whom were immigrant leaders themselves. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, we've been a part of this network, um, and they were imagining together. And, of course, I wasn't there, 
Um, but I'm, I'm now a cheerleader from the distance. Uh, but it gives me hope that this uh, vision is now taking root in these communities. And there will be a way of connecting the gifts of wisdom in some of our pastors and other leaders um, that can create environments for uh, these passionate, eager, and new Christians uh, can begin to deepen uh, their faith and their leadership in the church. So I'm excited about the classes that we were able to provide in the two years that I was a part of Agora, and now I'm excited and hopeful for what might come next. Cool. I, uh, I think I know where you're going to go with this, but uh, a question <laughs> I have is, you know, if someone was starting off in ministry, maybe they are a young person who's like in the confirmation class, or maybe there's someone that didn't participate in church and, and now is coming part of the faith community, or maybe it is a, a new seminarian or somebody along mm-hmm. those lines. What, what advice would you give them or insights you might want to help them with as they kind of start to engage in ministry a little deeper? Sometimes I answer a similar question by saying that, that there are three things that I look for in someone who's called to ministry and evaluating whether or not someone is, is going to be an effective leader in the church. And that is that they need to, and again, it goes back to love. Uh, they need to love God in a way that is clear and compelling and contagious, um, and be able to tell stories about that, about where they see the Holy Spirit working in their lives. They need to love God. They need to love the people in front of them. person right here in front of me whom I might disagree with, whom I might not understand, um, but I need to love them in a way that they know that they are loved. Um, because if you don't begin with love, you're going to end in failure. Yep. Um, and third, you need to love the people who aren't here yet. Mm-hmm. Um, those and, and imagine the possibilities of saying, yes, but there is always room for one more at the table and we need to structure our ministry so that there's always that empty seat at the table and who's going to sit in that empty seat rather than looking at the church pew and thinking, oh, that's where the Johnsons used to sit, oh, but they're, they're dead or they moved to California. Oh, that's where so-and-so used to sit. Think about who in your life you'd like to have sitting in that pew and, and loving them even though, again, you might not understand them. Um, You might not be comfortable sitting next to them because they might come from a different place than you do, theologically or liturgically or uh, politically. But loving God, loving the person in front of you, and loving the person who's not here yet, I think are the three most important things in effective uh, Christian leadership. That's really great, especially that last one. I know, at least in my own congregation and other congregations I've been a part of, it is always looking back at what used to be mm-hmm. and not looking ahead at what could be. And yeah. that is that is really, really powerful for me. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. Sure. We're going to start wrapping up our time together. I mean, we, I'm um, sure, could sit here for another hour or so and talk with you, but... You can, but I got, I got places to <laughs> you go. You got places to go. What is, as we kind of wrap up here, what is something that you want uh, pastors who listen to this or lay people who listen to this to know about you and some final thoughts here? Well, I would just uh, invite your prayers for me as I begin to grow in this this new role for the good people of the Milwaukee area, um, the greater Milwaukee Synod, and all the people that we live and work and serve. And I would just invite people to really pray for each other, not just in general, but by name. Mm-hmm. And, and then to invite them in relationships and conversations, as we've done over this last hour, you're not going to sit down in the same way with other people. But to say, is there anything, I'm going to be praying for you tomorrow, is there anything specific that I can pray for? So you're not asking for a person saying, 
can I pray for you? Oh, oh no, 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 I'm fine. Yeah. But no, I'm going to be praying for you. That's not the question. The question is, is there anything specific? Um, and that opens, that invites the door for people to start to share what's on their heart. And so I would just um, invite you and encourage you to do that with the other people in your life. Bishops, pastors, leaders, uh, confirmation students, whomever you, you're connected to. And just, we just need to pray for each other. Yeah. Because we have some big, um, hard challenges. Um, but we have an amazing God. And, and, and um, it's just a, it's an amazingly um, powerful time to be a part of the church. And so I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity to, to serve in this way. Um, but keep praying. Great. And that is something that we all can do and something that is so important to each and every single one of us. So again, thank you. And, and thank you for taking the time with us this morning as we uh, connect with uh, some of the newly elected bishops. So tell your friends when you meet with them that we'd love to talk with them and have a chance to sit down with them and uh, share with them that even though we're bald, we're not scary. So <laughs> <laughs> Right. And I know that it's... Um it's just a, it's a fire hose that you're trying to keep up with uh, in this work. So um, good luck trying to connect with the others, but uh, it's, a, yep. it's, it's a rich life. Yeah, and oh. thanks, thanks for your witness and your leadership and uh, right. for taking the time with us. We both really appreciate it, so thanks. And we will be praying for you. So, Amen. So, and I uh, for you. Thank you. Thank you. Are there, right. Is there a good way for people to connect with you uh, if you email Facebook? What, sure. The way I've got like a, 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 a Bishop Paul Erickson page on Facebook okay. where I post things. So I just look for Bishop Paul Erickson on Facebook, and that's got my email and, and uh, phone number on it there. Perfect. Great. Thank you to everyone who has listened to this podcast. Uh, we appreciate you joining us today. And if you wanted to connect with Jeff or I, we are also on Facebook at Two Bald Pastors. Uh, you can also go to twobaldpastors.com to check out what we are up to in the world and in this new uh, podcasting media space. So thank you for listening. Once again, I am Joe McGarry. And I'm Jeff Cinebaldo. And we are the Two Bald Pastors, helping you connect your faith with your life. Thank you and be blessed. Bye now. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. Mine's usually kind of a bluish gray. Bluish gray? Mine's typically green. Hmm, disgusting. Yes. <laughs> I think because I wear a lot of blue t-shirts. I think mine is just because I'm disgusting. I think so too. I also I agree with that. <laughs>